Welcome to Myth Take. I'm Darren. I'm Allison. Hey. We switched up that intro. It's about time. Fresh gonna, take on ancient myth. Yeah. Gonna confuse a few people, maybe. That's right. Good morning. Good afternoon. And that's it. We're done. <laughs> we wish. No. No. Part no. three. Episode 22. It's 23. Real... 23. 22? 23. Oh, 23. Oh, yeah. 23. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's a real but it's barn part burner. three of yeah. the hymn to Apollo, that's which right. is a really, really long hymn. And we'll we've gone through the first half of the hymn pretty thoroughly with two episodes and then we were kind of thinking maybe people don't want to go that slow it's like so we're speeding it up a little bit and we are going to finish off the second half of the hymn the trilogy tonight that's right just all good yeah. trilogies so one two three hammer it out yeah, yeah. uneven coverage this but that's is, okay this is return of the jedi you know we've had star <laughs> wars empire now it's return of the jedi there will be no ewoks in this one although there will be Cretan sailors so stay tuned because you're going to love it right so where did we leave off last time, Alison? I think, if yeah. I recall correctly, because it has been a while, yeah. I think we left off um, where everything was all happy, hunky-dory, and the poet was promising fame to the Delian maidens. All that good and stuff. All so of that Apollo good was stuff. born. We got to that. Yeah, he harmony among the gods. Right. Yeah. Harmony among, oh, right. Harmony yeah. on earth, right? Thanks to the lyre yeah. and harmony on Mount Olympus, right? Yeah. Perfect. Okay. I know yes. we're exactly where we are. We're just about to get into the... The uh, the Pythian section of the hymn, right? Yeah. Oh, well, I guess you could call it the Delphic. We're about as well. line two hundred seven. Yeah. In our translation. Yeah. In, yeah. in around the two hundreds or so. Um, yeah. And you see Apollo playing the lyre in the company of the gods. Yeah. You know, you know, it's funny too that Hera's not really there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Poor yeah. Hera. And Zeus and Leto, you know, smiling and grinning and saying, mm, "Yeah, this is all part of my plan." Zeus and he's patting himself yeah. on the back. Very well done. Okay. Yeah, we covered that pretty thoroughly yeah. in the last episode. So. Um, this section starts off, um, we're in the second half of the hymn, is called the Pythian half, mm -hmm. and you'll learn in a minute why it's called Pythian, if you don't already know. Mm -hmm. And if you do know, you'll just have to, I don't know, sit tight and <laughs> bear with us. Yeah. Um, and it starts off, of it's course. It's a neat name, compelling name. Well, it's, it's a good dividing place for, for the hymn, because mm -hmm. the hymn almost starts over. We have some language that we usually find at the beginning of, of hymns, and it kind of almost starts over. So it's a good breaking point. And, of course, it starts with another catalog of Greece. Yeah. As Apollo is wandering through northern Greece. Yep. To find out where he's going to, find a good spot where he's going to establish his temple. And he's he on goes, a mission. He is on a mission. And he yep. is going to, he goes everywhere. And we're not going to read all the places no. for you this time. But, because uh, there's a lot of them. But it's another but, geographical catalog, right? That yep. reinforces Panhellenism, makes the world bigger and brighter and better. Yep. And does all sorts of things. And it's a theoxony, right? Because yeah. it's another example of a wandering god on earth. And whenever that happens, we're always in for something very interesting. Because they don't just wander around and look at the trees. They usually talk to the locals and do something. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, Apollo finds a local. Uh-oh. <laughs> he finds this beautiful grassy vale with a beautiful little spring in it and wildflowers. I'm using a little bit of poetic license here. It's not in the translation. That's right. But this is your ideal landscape. And yeah. he's like, this is I cool. like this. This is cool. Yeah. And um, the problem is there's somebody already there. And we 
are going to read this and, we're, and yeah, we're you. going to have our first reading at this spot. And and one thing I'd like to comment about it too is maybe listen for place names if there's any. All right? Is there any place names in this one? I'm not sure. Oh no, Let's it's find not. Out. This isn't a place name, so that means I have to say it. After oh. he left Mount Olympus, he descended yeah. Pieria, right? Yeah. Which is this area to the slopes of Mount Olympus, and it will be significant to Apollo, right? And this encounter with this local that you're about mm -hmm. to read about is on the slopes of Mount Helicon, mm -hmm. which is also the Mountain of the Muses. So mm -hmm. here we have another divine encounter, right, with a feminine force that happens to be encountering a male force, Apollo, but the Mountain of the Muses, right, is also significant um, for a uh, worship of Zeus, a uh, sacred shrine to Pegasus, and also altars to the muses themselves. And Hesiod happened to hang out there. And look what happened to him. So you're in for something, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's let's have a read. All right. Here we go. You stood very near her and said, Telfusa, here indeed I intend to build a very beautiful temple, an oracle for men, who will always bring complete hecatombs to me here, both those who live in the fertile Peloponnesus and those who live in Europe and throughout the sea-girt islands to consult the oracle. And to all these I would prophesy unerring advice, delivering my oracles in the rich temple. So speaking, Phoebus Apollo laid out the foundations broad and very long from one end to the other. And when she saw it, Telfusa was angered in her heart and said, Lord Phoebus, worker from afar, I shall put a word in your heart, since you mean to build your beautiful temple here to be an oracle for men who will always bring complete hecatombs to you here. But I will speak out and you take it to heart. The pounding of swift horses will always trouble you and mules drinking from my sacred springs. Then men will want to marvel at the well-made chariots and the pounding of the swift-footed horses, instead of the great temple and the many possessions inside. But if indeed you would listen to me at all, though you are stronger and mightier than me, Lord, and your strength is very great, build in Crissa, beneath the fold of Parnassus, there no beautiful chariots will rattle, nor will there be the sound of swift-footed horses around your well-built altar." But so to you, as Iapion, they would bring gifts, and the famed tribes of men, and you, rejoicing in your heart, would receive beautiful offerings from the men living around there. And there she, you know, she persuaded the mind of the far shooter in order that she herself would have the glory in her land and not the far shooter. Well, this is a great example of that female cunning that we often see in Greek mythology. Yeah. Um, Telfusa is concerned about herself here. She's not really concerned about the horses and donkeys and mules disturbing Apollo. She the noisy is, chariots. Yeah, noisy chariots yeah. and people being distracted from him. Mm -hmm. But she's manipulating him yeah. so that she can have her spring and keep her spring and and uh, worship of her right. secure. Yeah, she's selfish, like all gods are, right? They want yeah. their divine mortal attention. And this brings her honor. This brings her definition. This brings her timai. And she wants what she wants. And, and she's going to engage with Apollo in a, in a contest of Matus. And he doesn't have any. So it's no wonder that uh, he gets duped. And we learn at... The beginning of that of that 
passage there, mm-hmm. a little bit about, about Apollo too. He just shows up and he says, this is going to be mine. He yeah. doesn't ask questions. He doesn't find, you know, he's, he, he doesn't care about who may or may not already be there. Right. He just says, I'm going to build my temple here. Mm-hmm. And again, he references, just like we, we saw with uh, Delos's, um, Leto's promise to Delos, um, Hecatomb's men from all over the world are going to come. Um, he mentions the Peloponnesus, he mentions Europe yeah, like and that. the islands. So we've got yeah. that Panhellenic thing going mm-hmm. on again here. And again, the hecatombs, the, the massive, um, I think of them as barbecues, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the this, bulls. yeah, the, uh, the, the, the hundred, hundred bulls. Mm-hmm. And of course we see his teammate again, um, which is the Oracle. And he says, I will prophesy an airing device. So he's the mouthpiece. He's going to be Zeus's mouthpiece. Yeah. Um, and he's going to deliver the oracles from his rich temple. So important little bit of characteristic totally. of Apollo there. Yeah, he's very hands-on and he wants yeah. to do it. And he's definitely on a mission. But it does mention uh, that Telefusa is angered in her heart. Yeah. So when she well, receives he, that, it generates anger. He starts... He, he doesn't just say it, but he starts to lay out the foundations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she gets Trouncing furious. Yeah, yeah. So that's like somebody coming into your house and re- starting to rearrange your furniture. Yeah. It took you off sure. a little bit, right? Yeah. It, I'm, I'm almost reminded of when you see like pioneers or, or farmers even sort of like pacing out the foundation for a barn or something or, you know, that they, they, they have yet to build, but they intend to. And they're already visualizing it in their mind and they're mm-hmm. just sort of making it, making it real. Well, he wants to make it real in this place. Okay. Um, and interesting as well here, um, the name Peloponnesus here, this is the first mention or the first uh, extant mention, so in literature that's still surviving, mm-hmm. um, of? Of, of, of the word, oh, of, of the, word the Peloponnesus, uh, of Peloponnesus oh, okay. which means island of Pelops, which right. is a different myth, right. um, but uh, that's the first time. That, that it appears here as a single word. Yeah. So a little linguistic importance there too. Yeah, it's cool. So Yeah, absolutely. And and Europe, when he does refer to Europe, he's not referring to Europe necessarily as we think of it, but more as mainland Greece, northern mm-hmm. Greece, those those parts, those parts of, of Greece. Now Telfusa suggests that he goes to Crissa beneath the fold of Parnassus. Mm-hmm. And whenever you see Crissa or Parnassus, you think, or you should think, Delphi. Yeah. Uh, because That's Apollo's mountain. Yeah. It's not the mountain that he's happened to be in right now or very no. near Helicon. No, no. He's got to go quite some distance. He's like, why don't you go over to that spot? It's better mm-hmm. there. You like it. It's more uh, quiet. Yeah. that way. And she also, interestingly, uh, refers to Apollo as Iapion, uh, which is a little uncertain, but is linked to the god's early title as a healer, mm-hmm. Aeon. Yeah. Um, so that's just an, an interesting little little note there. Why, what that name means? Yeah, it's kind of in, it's significant in a way because Apollo is the only god of the Olympian pantheon that has a dedicated hymn that's named of de, of any other. These are all hymns to Homeric gods, mm. but in the ritual or in the ritual worship of Apollo as a god, they sing the paeon. Men sing uh, the paeon, yes. the healing song. And and like there's no really uh, there no, none of the other gods that I'm aware of have a a specialized song like this. Right? So okay. it adds to the sort of TMI of, of Apollo. And that does make mention to it, right? That's in there. It's, it's, it's in there for, for fun and recognition, right? Um, so let's take a look at the next bit. Okay. What do we got on here next? Um, shall we read a little? Do you want me to read a little bit more? Yeah, I think we should uh, okay, get so, into 287. Okay, so just to set it up a little bit, Apollo... R- 
thinks, oh, Telfusa, you're right. And he you're rushes right. off. Yeah, he's like, and he perfect. rushes off to Delphi to set up his temple. And that's what he's going to describe here. Yeah, you know, it might be worth mentioning. Why do why why is he so easily duped? Because he doesn't have Matus. Because he doesn't he's have Matus. And he doesn't check in with Zeus. <laughs> yeah, and he doesn't check in with Zeus. That's part of it, too, you know. And that's something that's often overlooked. Because they're like, how is he, how, you know, if he knows everything. That's, but they know, don't. But, does, but Greek gods don't. Yeah. Uh, or if, if at least he has the perspective of and Zeus, you think he might figure it out. And right? that's another thing. When we talk about prophecy yeah. in the ancient world, we're not talking about knowing everything or no. knowing what's going to happen. But it's, it's more like getting advice from the gods. Sure. Or what the gods want to happen, which may or may not be what actually happens. Right, it's yeah. the will of Zeus yeah. for man. Right? It's not. It's it's not necessarily like fortune telling no. kind of thing. No, it's not like that at all. Okay. And and he can be. And you know what? I would also add to that as a quality of the aristocratic side of Apollo. He doesn't expect to be lied to. No. You no, know? like it's it's one of those things that you know when you you just because that Arab privilege, right? When someone tells you a falsehood or exaggerates the truth or manipulates you, um, if you don't expect it. You you know you're vulnerable to attack. So the Matus is the perfect weapon against a god like Apollo, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it works. It works in spades. But the problem is, right? We'll see. Let's take a look at the next little section. Here indeed, I intend to build a beautiful temple to be an oracle for men who will always bring complete hecatombs here for me. Both those who live in fertile Peloponnesus and those who live in Europe and throughout the Seagird Islands to consult the oracle. And to all these, I would prophesy the unerring advice, delivering my oracles in the rich temple. Thanks, Darren. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the lines of Apollo. Yes. So they very much are reiterative of what he said when he was in the presence of Telefusa, that he has an intention to build, and what its function will be, and who shall worship there. And then she says, go to this place. So he does. And when he gets to the slopes of Mount Parnassus, when he gets to this rocky area, he looks around, he says the same thing to himself, mm -hmm. right? He's like, I hear indeed, you know, my intention is to do this, and these are the people that will worship here, and so on and so forth, right? And then he begins, again, to lay out the foundations, broad and very long, from one end to the other. That's the striding out image that I was talking about before, right? But unlike the slopes of Mount Helicon... Right. This is Delphi. This is Delphi, and it is not a pleasant, grassy vale with trees and beautiful springs. Sure, and it is already occupied. There's another local. There's another yeah, local who right. we will meet in a few minutes. Meet the neighbors. Maybe not even quite as nice as right. as, as Telfusa, but mm -hmm. she has certainly sent him off to <laughs> Maybe a. Not as, definitely not as nice <laughs> okay, as Telfusa. I'm trying to build oh, okay. some suspense. I gotcha. Okay. okay. Um, anyway, so Delphi is not, it's, it's, it's a rocky place and, uh, we'll, I have not been there yet. I've seen lots of really yeah. nice pictures. I have to, we'll, we'll put, we'll find some nice pictures to it, put on the blog. It for has people. a, it has a, a rugged beauty. Yes. Yeah. Rugged is the word for yeah. it. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the temple itself and the Oracle. Mm -hmm. Um, so the Oracle is, uh, the person here who gives the word of Apollo, the, uh, the word of Zeus via Apollo, I guess, okay. to questioners. And at Delphi, the oracle is a female priestess named the Pythia. And she sits on a tripod, which is like a cauldron with three legs, um, which has got to be really uncomfortable. I, re I just don't quite understand how that works. It's mm -hmm. got to be uncomfortable. Neat chair. 
at any at any rate, mm-hmm. um, she, uh, she offers these utterances. And from my understanding, and it's all a little bit hazy because we don't have we just don't have details, right? right? We're we're trying to piece archaeology and literature reference mm-hmm. and that kind of thing together. But there were certain days of the year when the Pythia was available for questioning. And if you were a questioner and able to make the appropriate sacrifices required, then you would ask the question to a priest who would then take your question and relay it to the Pythia, who would then come out with something garbled Mm -hmm. and then relay that back to you. They'd work it a little bit and they'd give it back to you. Yeah. So... Then you're on your own. The question has... (laughs) The question... Yeah, then you're on your own. And... The uh, Pythia's oracles are are infamously vague mm-hmm. in that they, um, are, or as they are recorded in literature, yeah. are infamously vague sure. as they can be taken in more than one sense. So it's really up to you to figure yeah. out what it's about. But the other thing um, that's interesting about this is uh, archaeologists and scholars have wondered for years, like, what is, like, the Pythia is supposed to be high on something, some kind of fumes. Mm-hmm. And um, there are some different, there have been some different theories, and I'm sure there will be some different theories in the future mm-hmm. of how she did this. Was she chewing bay leaves because the bay laurel is, is, is sacred to Apollo, or mm-hmm. were they burning laurel and she was mm-hmm. getting high off of it somehow? Mm-hmm. Many different theories. One of the more recent ones, and personally the one which I find the most plausible, mm-hmm. um, is was actually developed by a scientist mm-hmm. who... Um, uh, or a science uh, writer that kind of researched this, and uh, Delphi sits on a, a juncture of uh, two fault lines, which would which were active at this time and would have been emitting certain certain gases that would have the effect of making um, making the priestess high and delivering these garbled garbled messages. Yeah. And we'll put a link to a really interesting book that outlines the very experimental archaeology sure. of, of sitting around trying yeah. to get high off of uh, nitrous oxide yeah. and all of these different things and trying experimental archaeology. Classics is fun people, okay? Mm-hmm. When you but you also have made a really good point about whether or not this this aspect of kind of the how of the Pythia is even relevant. Well, I was reading a little article later on that many of the things about Pythia and the later cult of Apollo come at a much later date. So much of what we understand about Pythia and the intoxicants or, or the process that, um, that a petitioner and the priests and the god are responsible for is much, much later. So what this hymn is describing... Uh, we don't know because it doesn't talk about the mm-hmm. tripod. It doesn't talk about the utterances of prophecy. It doesn't talk about the, you know, mm-hmm. the tripod or the Pythia is not named. So it's very early on. Yeah. Right. And yes, what, and that's and, important to note too that right. that what that site it was evolves like. over time. Right. It evolves o- over right. time. And the, and this this site yeah. at Delphi has yeah. a long tradition as a oracular shrine. Uh, that goes well back into the Archaic and into the Bronze Age, and a series of divinities have been tied to it and associated with it. Themis, Poseidon, Apollo, local gods, a whole whack of things. So it's a a really important and contentious site, but 
always associated with oracle, always yeah. associated with prophecy. Yeah. And of course, the prophecies that we have, and mm -hmm. there's the most famous one, is it Cyrus in Herodotus? Sure. Uh, who asks, uh, who, and again, he's, he's not a Greek, he's a Persian, and he mm -hmm. asks the oracle, should I go to war? And he's told, or I guess he's a Mede. Yeah. Oh dear, I'm getting my history Doesn't confused. matesn't matter. Anyway, he asks, the, he asks the Pythia if he should go to war, and yeah. the Pythia says, if you go to war, you will destroy a great kingdom. Right. And, and he goes like, off. Awesome, wartime. Yeah. And Do it. lo and behold, yeah. the kingdom he destroys is his own. Absolutely. Um, and that comes to us filtered through literature, too, yeah. right? So... I mean, who knows if he, like, who knows what was behind that, right? And what was really said and, and, and all of those things as well. And I don't want to devalue the power and the, the accuracy of Delphic um, uh, prophecy. Because uh, this is something that, of course, you know, Paul is described as a god that speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Or with two tongues, for example, in Euripides. Euripides' ion, they talk about that. Apollo speaks with two tongues. One is the truth and one is sort of the truth. One is for himself and one is for a mortal. If, you know, if he, if he wants to confound you like the muses, he can, right? Um, it all serves Zeus's purpose. But the longevity and the antiquity of this site is something that as, a, uh, as more and more people go to it and visit it and ask questions to a college of priests that have been there for a long, long time, they begin to know a lot about the ancient world around them. Well, exactly, right? because they're, they're a meeting place for all of the ancient world, right. and they're going to hear, now, not yeah. as fast as, like, the internet today, yeah. of course, <laughs> but they're going to hear about what's going on everywhere, right. and so they can offer advice that will sway politics a certain way. Right, and that is not vacuous, yeah. right? That is actually um, informed. Yes. So when they say... When Cyrus says, shall I go to war, right? And the and it comes down to, you know, this this prophecy. That's not just something silly that they just cooked yeah. up to confound him and send him on his way. They know that this will happen, right? And, yeah. and, and of course, the ambiguity of it. And, and ambiguity yeah. always helps. Right. Um, because then you can always argue that the God was right. You just misunderstood what Absolutely. the God was saying. Absolutely. And, and, that, and that's, that's the Delphic, and I call them college. It's the Delphic priesthood. Yeah that learns these skills, right? And if you're just, you know, a regular schmo asking about your crop or something, then yeah, they could probably you're give probably you a pretty good... You're probably not even necessarily going to Apollo. No, you're not. But they, they, they collect all mm -hmm. this data yeah. and they learn their craft very well. And, and always in consultation, even after the fact, they always prove to be right. That's yes. something that you, that, you, that you learn. And then... Spin factory. We, exactly. <laughs> they're like spin doctors. But they, but they do have pronouncements that are accurate and are interpreted correctly mm -hmm. but we never really hear about them very often mm -hmm. right we always hear about the time that it went bad right yeah so i i would just like to offer up the idea that it is probably more accurate than we would be led yeah. to believe because of the sort of social network hub idea it's like uh the internet of the ancient world it's like twitter well it's, the twitter it's of like the twitter world. of the ancient world <laughs> it's kind of like well in 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 a the belly button or the navel of the center of the universe, right, or the center of the world from Hesiod's Theogony. Yes. Right? And that, and, and was this, that is, Delphi? this is Delphi, right? Yeah. So it is important um, in, in a, a theological sense, in a mythological sense, but also a in a social. social cultural sense. 
So everything kind of folds in on Delphi, and, be, and it becomes this nexus of information, distribution, and even self-identity, right? Because they begin to identify themselves as Greeks, even as foreigners come. I think that's important, right? If you see someone from another land that travels there, it, they, that really tells you a great deal about, one, the fame of the place, and two, what you are and what they are, right? Because you begin to define yourself against another, right? And one more thing mm -hmm. um, before we move on, mm -hmm. um, with the with the Panhellenic site, especially, um, well, I I don't I don't recall I don't think we talked about this yeah. with, with the festival at Delos, but mm -hmm. um, with these big Panhellenic sites like Delphi, they're showcases. Yeah, this is this is like having. Um, like having the World's Fair back sure. when the World's Fair used to be famous. Yeah, they're and like jewels in the crown. It. It, yeah. It's a showcase. So mm -hmm. all the Greek cities would come and they would build buildings to house treasure that they yeah. were offering to the gods, but that also became a statement. It became a way of showing off their wealth yeah. and who they were. Totally. So these sites are really important because... Uh, they go far beyond just the religious, mythological yeah. aspect um, and are very influential. But that's a different podcast. Well, that's another podcast entirely. But you're speaking about the treasuries and they yes. are extremely yes. important. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So perhaps some of our listeners uh, may want to weigh in with some opinions about the Oracle and that kind of thing. And perhaps there's some archaeologists listening who are more knowledgeable than us that uh, that, that have some interesting input. And we certainly welcome you. Um, our blog is mythtake.blog. So chime in with your opinion. And we are going to move on now. We are going to move on. To learn about the inhabitant yeah. of this new place. There's a local there as well. And I don't think we're going to spend any time really reading the digression. Okay. We're going to talk about it. Instead. And it is called a digression. Yeah. It's the, called, called the Typhaeon digression. Mm -hmm. um, Typhaeon uh, also appears in mythology as Typhaeus. And his monster. A serpent. A serpent. Yeah. A serpent monster. Yeah. But that's not the one that's there. But that's not the one that's there. Yeah. But it's there called... There's an unnamed the... serpent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is called the Typhaeon digression because Typhaeon was the monster that Hera gave birth to. And there's a couple of different versions of this story. But the version that the poet is giving us here is that... Um, Hera gave birth to this monster after or in retaliation for Zeus giving birth to Athena. So she decided she was going to give birth to something all by herself. She gives birth to Typhaeon, who turns out to be a monster because heaven forbid that that she be able to reproduce parthenogenically. Mm -hmm. Typhaeon was killed by Zeus during, Zeus during, during the Theogony, yeah. but not before um, not before it had to grow up first. And it was in the arms of this unnamed serpent, sleeping in the folds of Mount Parnassus, that right. um, where it was yeah. uh, where it was nurtured. Yes, um, Hera gave Typhaeon to to Pytho. Yeah. Um, not named that right now. Not not named that yet, yeah. but a serpent. Yeah. And of course, that's where we get Python. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a serpent mm -hmm. in the folds, as you said. Yeah, of, the folds of yeah. Mount Parnassus. Telfusa knew this. Telfusa was no dummy when she sent Apollo here. I, I think you're right. Yeah, the, the, the hymn doesn't say directly, but she does send him into danger. I think it's either one of two things. I think she either sends him here mm -hmm. to either get rid of this monster, or this, this the, yeah, this serpent. serpent. Dragon. Um, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Not with wings, but oh, a dragon. dragon. Um, 
she either sends him here to get rid of it because we're and we're told that it's ravaging the land and it's killing people's livestock and, yeah. and taking things. That's an so, interesting too. So she either does yeah. it kind of, oh, here's somebody who can finally deal with it. But yeah. more likely, I think, um, mythologically, she's mm-hmm. sending him as a challenge. So just like Typhaeon was sent... Uh, was used um, by Gaia as a challenge to Zeus's power. And sent, he, so is Telefusa. So Telefusa, the female yep. cunning, there you go. sends Apollo to his there challenge with with Pytho. And I'm going to call it Pytho, yep. even though it's not named serpent. yet. The serpent. Yeah. Um, and of course, Apollo's Apollo, like, oh my God. Okay, so yeah. we see we see that like father, like son thing. Yeah. Um, and, and the poet draws our attention to this through some of the language he uses. Um, so if you do, or when you do read, read this passage, you'll notice that, that this, this long digression about Typhaeon and, and what happens to him, the poet's trying to tell us the same thing is happening to Apollo here. Yeah. Apollo has to prove himself worthy. He's yeah. got a challenge that yeah. he has got to overcome. Right. It's a parallel lives motif, Zeus. As it is with the father, so shall it be with the son. Both of them are are, are presented as powerful dragon slayers, as um, as sky gods who destroy dragons of chaos. And the hymnist very deftly links the two narratives, one of Hesiod and here of the Homeric hymn together, and connecting both father and son at this spot. Uh, and so you have Typhaeon or Typhaeus and Hesiod's Theogony that Zeus destroys. And then here in this one, you have the serpent who Apollo destroys. Mm-hmm. And, and when each one of them destroys this challenger, it establishes their authority in their realm and institutes their new world order. This is how things are going to be done. It's going to put a stamp on it, right? Well, now this contest is over, right? They're going to say, this is mine, right? Zeus did it, and now Apollo does, does it as well. And this is my temple. Can I just read the death scene really quickly? Sure, why not? Okay. So. um, Whoever met up with the serpent, his fated day carried him off until the far worker, Lord Apollo, Mm -hmm. shot a strong arrow at her. Mm -hmm. So we see the arrow, Apollo's, Apollo's. And it's feminine, the serpent. Yep, the serpent is feminine. Come and a, we've got chthonic associations there too with with the with the earth and the underworld and 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 feminine deities there as well. I think it's important. And, yeah, I think it's important because this serpent is feminine, but Typhaeus is masculine. Good point. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it has to do with the previous tradition of of, of Delphi being a great goddess shrine. Ah, right? uh, so okay. They're talking about yeah. you know that that situation. And Apollo shoots. The serpent yeah. with a strong arrow. So we, so we see his weapon. Yeah. But uh, if you're familiar with Greek like mythology, here when you think Apollo, arrow, arrow, disease, sure. because the arrow is also used um, to spread disease. Yeah. It's 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 the it's the metaphor, and we yeah. see it in the Iliad where Apollo is raining down arrows. Right. On the Greek camp. Yeah. Disease um, strikes out of nowhere from an unseen so, source. So the poet doesn't tell us disease, but when right. you but when we read the description of how the how the the serpent, the serpent thank What's you. It say? This is what it says. It says okay, and she the and serpent she, yeah. racked with hard pains, yeah. lay gasping, great yeah, gasps, sound effects, <gasps> writhing on the ground. <laughs> 
Yeah. And the awful sound was yeah. unspeakable. Yeah. And through the forest, she twisted herself continually here and there, and she left her life spirit, breathing it out, slaked with blood. Yes. But Phoebus Apollo boasted, now rot here on the earth which feeds men. At least you will no longer be an evil bane for living mortals. Yeah. And then... And rot, right? And Remember that? Yes. And, and then a little further on, the poet tells us, and on that spot, the holy force of Helios, yes. the sun, who yes. also becomes associated with Apollo, Absolutely. made her rot away. Yeah. And That's whence what now, means. whence now yeah. it is called Pytho. That's right. And then we get the, the naming back Pytho to the serpent as Pytho. Yeah. And the people call the Lord Pythian mm -hmm. eponymously oh. because... On that spot, the force of piercing Helios caused the monster to rot. So in this case, we learn how Pytho got its name, because it means rot. It's connected etymologically to mm -hmm. rot in Greek. And also how Apollo acquires his cult name through action. And why we call serpent. pythons pythons, because they're snakes. Because <laughs> they're snakes. Yeah, why not? Okay. Right. Is there a difference between snakes and serpents? No, it's just I, a I, synonym. No, I just wondered. After okay. Apollo killed the unnamed serpent. And and, yeah. and you know what? That's so that's interesting just literarily speaking. Like I'm thinking, so through the act of its destruction, he gives it its name. Right? Notice how it's unnamed. So now it acquires honor through Apollo. Apollo transforms it through death, right? But he also commands Helios the sun itself, to microwave, to cook it, to death ray it from the sky, right? And that's something that, again, demonstrates his power, right? And demonstrates his aristocratic quality and his connection with Zeus. Because, I don't know, I might have given you the false impression that he's some sort of naive aristocrat, but he still is extremely powerful. He's an powerful. entitled aristocrat. He's entitled, <laughs> but that it comes with power, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's why he's dangerous. So when he says it, Helios does it, even though this guy literally is a couple of days old, but... You know, he's Zeus's son. He's got a big, big job in the universe. And wow, look what he just did, right? He destroyed this serpent of the earth, right? And then he says, rot it, rot it, transform it. And he nukes it. It bubbles and cooks like a steak cooked too long in the microwave and then I, thrown I just, out onto the I lawn. I think this would make right? an amazing movie scene. Done, it would. done right. This and would then just be an amazing scene. Right. So through this act of violence, right, the, and, and, and death, and disease, too, by your analogy, is transformed into a benefaction for man because it rots into the earth and turns into the fertile ground in that area that helps the men, right? Mm -hmm. And they can grow crops and do whatever they like, sort of, in that immediate area, right? But then, They're not being eaten by dragon anymore. But then the yeah. penny drops for Apollo. Penny's always dropping And for he realizes, wait a minute, yeah. this is why Telfusa sent him. Mm -hmm. And the poet says, and then Phoebus Apollo knew in his heart why the fair flowing spring had deceived him. Yeah. So why Telfusa the nymph had sent him. Right, he just And do you think in. she's going to get away with it? No. No. So he's a little slow on the uptake, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he clues in. But he clues in. Yeah, eventually he figures it out. And it's, again, the action, right? And that might have been part of it as well, just sort of distracted and in the contest and hoping that he would be overcome by the serpent, right? And then, indeed, Phoebus Apollo considered in his heart what men um, uh, he should bring is the next next section that we're going to look at. But well, he goes... We should talk about the destruction of Phoebus Okay, sure, right on. Yeah. And he goes and takes her out, right? Yeah, so yeah. he heads back to, back to Telfusa, and he, he destroys her. He yeah. obliterates her, literally mm -hmm. and figuratively. Mm -hmm. He pushes 
her against a giant cliff with a shower of stones and hid her waters. And he made an altar in the woody grove very near the fair flowing spring. And there all men pray to the Lord Apollo by the name Telphusius. So he takes over her name Mm -hmm. and destroys her spring. And again, through an act of of violence violence, and force. In an action, he, he acquires a new cult title. Yes. Right. So as the Pythian Apollo, because he destroyed Pytho, and now Telphusian, because he destroyed Telphusa. Right? Yes. And again, we see Apollo's. Uh, he's he's reactive. He's yeah. He's reactive. He's yeah. quick. He's quick to anger, and he's yeah. quick to act on the anger. Yeah, that's true. And too. Uh, and in violent ways. Right. Yeah. He's immediate. He's immediate. Yeah. There's wrath there for sure. Okay, so he's got his temple, but he doesn't have any people yet. So why don't we read he this? He needs people. He needs people. What, what he needs type pe- of people does he need? He needs some priests. He needs priests. If you've got a temple, if you have an oracular shrine, you're going to need priests. So he goes on a little recruiting campaign, and we're going to yep. pick up the story of lines 388. Totally. And then indeed, Phoebus Apollo considered in his heart what men he should bring in to be priests, who would be his attendants in rocky Pytho. And he pondered these things. He saw on the wine-dark sea a swift ship. On it were many noble men, Cretans from Minos's Knossos, who performed sacrifices for the Lord and announced the judgments of Phoebus Apollo of the Golden Sword, whatever he says when he gives his oracle from the laurel beneath the veils of Parnassus. These men were sailing in their dark ship after business and profit to Sandy Pylos, and the men of Pylos going after business and profit. But Phoebus Apollo joined them, taking the form of a dolphin in the sea. He leapt onto the swift ship and lay there, a great and terrible monster. There we okay. go. Yeah, it's like, hey, you need priests, right? This is the way you do it. And what an interesting way to do it. Well, I love the mention of Crete, right? Don't just because grab, this... the lo- grab the locals, though, right? Yeah, well, why don't you grab the locals, Darren? Well, you don't do want you? to grab the locals. Why not? Because then they'll be privileged. Exactly. Say, hey, this is our place. This is our exactly. God. This is our, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, you want this to be Panhellenic. So favoring one place over the other isn't going to go over very well. Yeah, that's why I go with foreigners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and I love it because we see, well, we like see, foreigners. yeah, they're yeah. kind of, kind of, yes, yeah. kind of, no. Yeah. But we see here uh, the, Cre- the Cretans Cretan. from Minos's Knossos. And yeah. that connects us to a whole other world of myth totally. that we recently talked about yeah. in our Theseus episode, Absolutely. our joint episode with uh, the Endless Knot podcast. Mm-hmm. So go back and listen to that one. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's really interesting that, um, he pulls, he pulls them in from, from outside and, and, and sets this up and not only they're foreigners, they're unskilled. They don't, yeah. they, this isn't their job. They happen to be sailors. They're merchants. Yeah. Right. And they're, they're just not... plying their trade when they're abducted by Apollo. Right? Well, and Apollo is a dolphin. Like he yeah, transforms cool. himself into a dolphin and yeah. flops up on the deck of the ship. And like, they're like, oh. Yeah. yeah. Again, with another gasp, we have to have like a gasp sound, like <gasps> like that, right? <laughs> giant del- giant dolphin jumps up on the ship, and it's described as monstrous. Yeah, right? as, as a great and terrible monster. And you know what struck me about this was the idea that you know we had talked about them being shapeshifters, and like you just sort of say things like you know the gods could you know turn into any form they like or turn into humans at will or whatever. But there's a pretty strong tradition of you know Zeus and Poseidon and here Apollo changing into animal forms. Right, whether they be bulls or horses, and then, but here it's Apollo, right, as a as a dolphin, and and again it's described as monstrous, and I'm sort of imagining, you know, that giant image of, of uh, of Dionysus luxuriating on the deck of the ship, 
right, where we have another abduction scene, right? And this one is sort of part of the mythic memory of that of that same corpus of hymns, because we are in, in that, right? And we had an abduction there, and, and the arrival of a god, and now here we have abduction here, and so on and so forth. So. Well, and I think, in, it just occurred to me, I think in some ways... Um, we maybe have like a partial epiphany here, well, we do. right? Yeah, um, so he's not in human form, size. but the reaction is, yeah. we, so we've got the size. That's yeah. what that's what makes the dolphin monstrous. Dolphins yeah. aren't, we don't think of them as monsters, but when a giant <laughs> dolphin flops up on the deck of your ship, sure. maybe it's a little bit scary. Could be. Um, they don't go anywhere near it. The no. It describes it. And it says, yeah, and paralyzed. they sat in silence in yeah. the ship afraid yeah. and they neither loosed the rigging. Yeah. So they were like too terrified to even move or mm -hmm. say anything. Mm -hmm. um, we're just missing out on some uh, some fragrance and, and light there. But we have oh, yeah. a partial a we'll, partial epiphany going on but there. But we will get those parts in the next couple of sections. But mm -hmm. they go on a tour. They do. It, 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 it's not just like, it's not just like, I need a, I need a lift. He doesn't pause up just like, there's a cool ship full of Cretans, I just need a lift, I'm going to turn into a dolphin and fly on it. No, he's got, an, again, an agenda. In this hymn so far, we have been through the Cycladic Islands. Yep. We have been through mainland Greece. Greece mm -hmm. And now we are sailing around the Peloponnese. That's right. And we're getting that last, our last chunk of Greece, um, place names, our last catalog or listing. Yep. And we're not going to read it to you. No, but he goes around they the south sail around the Peloponnesus. Up the west and across and, the north. Yeah, to Christus, mm -hmm. to Delphi. Yep. And again, it's a, a, yeah, it's the blustering southern wind. It's sort of like a divine force. It's just sort of pushing them along because the, the, the Cretan sailors, are, they don't even have to ply their craft. The ship is like, ship is like on autopilot. And the, Apollo is controlling its course, right? And the Cretans are quite removed from their ordinary world as simple traders. And then now they're forever denied a homecoming in the sense that they are in forced occupation change. And they don't have a nostos because they're not going back to Crete. No. Because Apollo's got some different designs for their, their future. And they came to shining Crete, rich in vines, to the mm -hmm. harbor. Yes. And the seafaring ship touched the sands. Then the far worker, Lord Apollo, leapt from the ship like a star at midday. So we get our brilliant light. Yeah. And from him many sparks flew, and the blaze into and the blaze went into the sky. And he entered the inner sanctuary, and there he kindled a flame, and the the light filled all Crissa. So we've got the light imagery. And the that's reaction, just a the reaction mm -hmm. of the Christians mm -hmm. here the is interesting. The wives of the Christians and mm -hmm. the daughters with their beautiful sashes raised a ritual cry at the force of Phoebus, right. for he instilled a great fear in each of them. Mm -hmm. um, and there's your fear, and there's yeah. your light, and there's your size. All all the components of your divine epiphany are have been um, displayed. In a matter of, a, you know, half a dozen lines or so. And then, now Apollo appears swift as a thought. Mm -hmm. He made a flying leap onto the ship, looking like a man powerful and strong. Back into the anthropomorphic form. In the full bloom of youth, his hair covering his broad shoulders, and he addressed them. So he, yeah. he addresses the Cretans. Yeah, in a form that they can recognize. Right? In a, yeah. And he says... It's like, hey. What are you guys doing? <laughs> yes, them why what are you guys doing and why are you here? Which yeah, just I, seems really odd. I know. I don't like to discuss that part. Okay. I want to go on to the next part because Apollo's playing a little bit of a mind game with him right then and there. 
and it just allows the audience to sort of catch up with it a little and bit. And have a bit of humor. Right. And and so right away, you know, it's more like he manifests themselves and then they say, you know. Well, and, and I think it's I think it's emphasizing that that theoxony aspect that we see in other hymns that people don't know when they're dealing with a god. No. And so you never know when a stranger might be a god. Right? Yes. But a pious Greek, and in this case, even the Cretans themselves, um, they recognize recognize but they follow the tradition that the stranger or the unknown and in this unknown place yeah. you know is in fact a divine force or a god yeah. because they do say you know what is this place you must be a god so the cretans say where are we yeah, where what are we? are we doing stranger in a strange land mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and then apollo says guess what guys you are not going home yeah that's you are going to stay here and he says he says, strangers who used to live around Knossos with its many trees. And that's an interesting emphasis because Delphi isn't known for its trees. Mm -hmm. So we're well, talking to Rocky Mountain. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I realize that. But I'm saying, he says, strangers who used to live around Knossos with its many trees. Well, right. now they're in a place without many trees. Right. Before. Now no longer will you return again to your lovely city and beautiful homes, right. each of you to your dear wives. Mm -hmm. But here you will keep my rich temple that is honored by many men. I am the son of Zeus, and I declare that I am Apollo. I led you here Keep going, yeah. over the great gulfs of the sea, not intending anything evil. But right. here you will keep my rich temple that is greatly honored by all men, and you will know the plans of the immortals by whose will you will always be honored continuously for all time. Perfect. So they don't get to go home, no. but they get to live in Apollo's rich temple and Learn. Be in communication with the gods. Right. It's a great privilege, right? They yeah. will be forever denied their homecoming. Sort of uh, almost a reference to the Odyssey in a certain way. But in they're removed from their ordinary world. And this is not their ordinary world. This is the new world of Apollo, right? And they have a specific function in this new world. And he's telling them what it's going to be. And it's going to be a good thing. And he's saying it's not evil. It's actually good. And I'm, I'm, I'm forced to think about... Uh, Demeter and Demophoon in Metanera mm -hmm. at this particular point. She had a different take on it. When I say she, the mother, she was saying something bad's going to happen. Something's bad's happening to my baby, right? And then Demeter was filled with wrath when it was was interrupted, right? So here is almost another example, right, where we're negotiating with humans who are a little slower on the uptake sometimes, and they're and the gods are like, this is the way it's going to be. This is going to be your role. It will be a good thing. Hold your, you know, your um, your resistance to, right? You've heard everything till I've set everything up. Yeah. And now we've got another name to talk about, mm -hmm. and we've been calling this place Delphi, but mm -hmm. the hymnist, the the poet here, has not referred to it as Delphi. He's referred to it as Crissa, and the slopes of Parnassus. Yeah. But so now Apollo says, Apollo says to the sailors, hmm. he leads them to Pytho. Since I at first on the misty sea in the shape of a dolphin leapt upon the swift ship, so pray to me as Delphinios. Yeah. But the altar itself will be Delphinian and famous forever. Right. So this this hymn is also serving an etiological purpose. Yeah. Because it's it's providing the explanation of why why some of these places have their place names. Right. So in that area. In yeah. in those specific areas. Yeah. And so now here we have Delphi. Um, mm -hmm. Delphis is the Greek word for dolphin. Right. And Apollo has the cult title Delphinios. Mm -hmm. um, 
to celebrate that or to celebrate or to mark the, the <laughs> I don't know if celebrate is quite the right word, sure, so his, his kidnapping. Yeah, his abduction. Um, and he, and he abduct becomes, people all the time. And that aspect of him, mm -hmm. of, of Apollo Delphinios, mm -hmm. is uh, is a god who protects merchants and sailors. Sure. Um, and the Mediterranean is a very volatile sea. It's very dangerous. And we're dealing with, with you know, some sailing technology, old-fashioned, no, no GPS or anything like that. So you need, a, you need a, as an ancient Greek, you need to have a god on your side, right? Well, so Apollo to, implied that they might... Uh, as is the tradition on occasion, that above-the-board merchants will occasionally revert to piracy in order to make a living. So he knew that they could be less than scrupulous, right? Because this is a practice as well. And it also implies that the Cretans themselves were a little morally ambiguous, uh, ambiguous when it came to this sort of practice, right? Yeah. And, and they, they sacrifice at that point, and then they eat together. Yeah. And then Apollo leads them to Pytho. Yeah. And at no place, just to just to, to clarify, at no place does the poet actually call the place Delphi. Mm -hmm. But he's made that clear connection for us as the mm -hmm. audience when, when we see those words. So right. yes. So they have that meal together. And again, we see eating together is about building community and yeah. um, connection. Uh, Zinnia, all of those, right. all of those, those things. Yeah, it's a way to calm them down, too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And they're after, like, "How shall we live?" Right? And and their 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 reaction oh. to that is is quite is quite uh, you know, we we have to look at well, line five twenty six to line five thirty, and just simply talk a little bit about you know why. Okay, so let's uh, skip forward a little bit here. How much? Yeah, and have a look at. Apollo's first prophecy. Well, sure, you know they they have a meal together. They're in Chrysa, right? He's telling them what they what he wants them to do, what he wants them to be, and they have a very natural reaction, and it's a pious one, right? Okay. I do like the candid nature of the Cretan sailors in this one. So let's let's take a look and see at five twenty six. Okay. But the spirit was stirred in their dear breasts, and the leader of the Cretans addressed him, asking, Lord Apollo, since indeed you have led us far from our dear ones and our fatherland, for thus it was pleasing to your heart, how shall we live now? Tell us this, we urge you. This land is desirable neither for growing crops nor for pasture land, so as to live well from it and at the same time to serve men. Apollo, son of Zeus, smiled at them and said, Foolish men, long sufferers who desire cares and painful toils and constraints in your heart, I shall tell you a simple word and set it in your minds. With a knife in your right hand, let each of you slaughter sheep forever, and they will always be plentiful, as many as the glorious tribes of men bring to me. But keep watch over my temple and receive the tribes of men gathering here and especially seeking my direction. If there's any idle word or deed and hubris, which is the custom of mortal men, other men will be your masters, under whose compulsion you shall lie subdued for all your days. All this has been told to you. You keep it in your minds. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the hymn. Yep. And and Apollo's Apollo's career as a as, as a, a, as a fortune teller, no, <laughs> begins. His, his career as an oracle begins <laughs> mm -hmm. with his first prophecy, and there's a lot to actually to unpack in here. Right. Um, they they have concerns. Uh, Apollo is is famously associated with two saints in the Greek world. 
made in agon. So um, no nothing in nothing in excess and say mm -hmm. Sorry, say that one again. Medanigan, which is uh, which is moderation in all things, or right? not, or or nothing and, in excess, and and yeah. and not I sell ton, which, which is, is no thyself. Yeah. So here here we see that first one um, for the first time. So yeah, the Cretans have a very normal reaction. They're like, okay, you brought us here. Yeah, this place we sucks. can't grow anything. We yeah. can't eat, even like herd sheep or goats. Like, yeah. what it's are we gonna rough. do? It's kind of rough. And they get the same promise that Delos got. Yeah. Way back, way way back at the beginning, beginning from Leto. Absolutely, it's like the Las Vegas in the desert, right? The worshippers will come, they will bring offerings, they will bring sacrifices, and you will enrich yourself uh, through that process, through that that exchange, right? Through the process of sacrifice, right? um, mm -hmm. and it's almost like uh, what's the reciprocity, right? That they will give to the God, and the God will give to them. Right in, in Delphi, it becomes wealthy to the extreme yeah. because everybody wants to tap into the will of Zeus. Everybody wants to have the favor of Apollo. Right? I kind of there's there's something about the imagery there. With a knife in your right hand, let each of you slaughter sheep forever. Yeah. Um, the, that that the, the, the hierophant, right? That there's no stop. There's no stop to the work. There's no end to the work. It's no. just gonna it's just gonna go on for every sheep they slaughter. There's gonna be another one. Right. Um, not that I like to think about slaughtering sheep, um, but just the way it's worded, that's just what it makes makes me think. Is yeah, well, kind of the process. endless nature of it. Yeah. And so they're to keep watch over over the over the, the temple and over the people who come to the temple, right? Mm -hmm. He says, Receive the tribes of men gathering here and seeking my my direction. Absolutely. And then he makes his deal with them. He says, If there's it but if if there's any idle word or deed, then you're gonna be turfed out. Yeah, and because you're going to be under the work of other men. Now you're free from working for other men. You're working for me. Mm -hmm. But if there's any idle word or deed and hubris, which is the custom of mortal men, eh, you're out. Yeah. Just as he sees the future role of the priests and their, uh, and their great sort of um, enrichment in the process, right? He also sees and he also knows of the nature of mankind. And hubris is a is a complex term, and it, we often translate it as arrogance or pride, but it's more than what we think of in English as with arrogance and pride. Um, that's only part of it. Um, it. It indicates acts that violate societal norms. Right. Themis. Um, exactly, themis, um, and and those norms are are protected by by the gods. So. It includes violence, moral transgressions, legal wrongs, and it's generally rooted in a sense of of insolence, of uh, a sense of superiority, yeah. especially superiority towards the gods, but also superiority to towards uh, towards other men. Yeah. Um, and the ancient Greeks were very big on this idea of men being moderate, of being of sound of sound mm -hmm. mind. Mm -hmm. I mean. They enjoyed their drunken yeah. excesses, but sure. as well, but um, but that's what that's what we see here. Totally. So don't overstep. Don't overstep your bounds. Is, yeah. is what he's saying to them. Don't don't try. I've put you in a really high position. But if you right. if you abuse that position, which would be the natural tendency of anyone that's yes. been placed above other other men, men will be your yeah. masters. And then I will just as easily as as, as I have raised you up. Yeah. I will I will bring Ate. I will ruin you. Right, yeah. and you yourself, who were judges, themistas, 
will be judged, Themistasio, right? They'll be judged by Apollo and they'll be brought low. And then they will find themselves slaves, right? Yes. So that really goes to show, like, yeah, he's talking about the cool stuff and everything. They've got to do what they have to do. They're, they already are, in a, in, a, in a kind of coded way, slaves to Apollo. But it's better to be a slave to a god than it is to be a slave to another man. Right, mm -hmm. you see the order of things are going, and and it's you got to do what you are told. Right, this yeah. is your role. Right. Yeah. And and they get it. They, they you know here's another example of not only an abduction but an encounter with a divine force that leads to a forced profession change. Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking about Hesiod's encounter with the divine on the slopes of Mount Helicon. He went up there, a shepherd came down, a poet, right, yeah. or a voice of the muses. Now here we have the same thing. We have Cretan sailors. They encounter Apollo, and now they're priests, right? They they become uh, like you know they they're, become transformed. Yeah. They're they're priests as long as they remember their place and yeah. and their job is to enforce them, is mm -hmm. to in, to uh, maybe enforce is the wrong word, but to encourage and, and oversee Themis um, yeah. that right act, and Themis here not being the goddess but being mm -hmm. the concept mm -hmm. of the right behavior between men. And that scene <coughs> um, made an so, agon and. Say, yeah, yeah. Uh, those do in later times yeah, they, do become sure. um, very closely associated right. with Apollo and are actually carved on his temple. Right. But remember, we're dealing with eighth right? century, yeah, yeah, an eighth century source. Yeah. But that goes on to become very closely associated with Apollo, which is kind of interesting because Apollo doesn't, I don't think, is always that moderate. You know what I mean? Like in, in his own actions, right? <laughs> like he flies oh, off the handle. He, yeah, he, it's one of those like, things. It's like, it's one of those things like, you know, we talk about like, why is an anthropomorphic God so interesting? Because they look and act like men and women. And mythology is filled with ex gross and exaggerated actions. If they were moderate, then they wouldn't have a very interesting myth. No. So Apollo is part of the group anyways, right? Yeah. But I'm sure there are oodles of opportunity to look at Apollo as being moderate and logical and, and straightforward and all those other sorts of things. But it just doesn't make very good stories, no. right? So that that's fine. And, and, and the ancient Greeks were probably a little bit more pragmatic about, about this as well. And here we are on the other side of all this time talking about these these um, that's more exaggerated and hyper emotional or reactive okay. side of Apollo, but you know, and and the other thing that I that I like about that before we leave this, uh, put this to bed, is the idea that just that admonition that Apollo gives them, um, and with a little bit of that prophecy about if you do what is expected of you, then things will work out for you brilliantly because I've planned it this way, and you will benefit from it too, and but that idea that they're not to getting back to the spin doctor's idea. They're not to take this position of privilege and and spin it to their own advantage and manipulate the will of Zeus or manipulate the judgment, right? What what they're doing is extremely sober and extremely important. And if he, Apollo, gets wind of the idea that they're taking advantage of this privilege, he'll deal with them. Right? Mm -hmm. So that applies to the prophecies. I'm thinking also not only the actions, their actions, but also their interpretations of prophecy. Who do they see? How do they interpret it? How do they store the information and so on? All that's the network stuff that we were talking about earlier on. Yeah, don't uh, don't tweet out prophecies at 3 a.m. Absolutely. Um, but make mm -hmm. sure that they're measured and, and considered. Yeah, that they're yeah that it is uh, like sober is the yeah. word I want to yeah. use, right? Yeah, you know. Um, Moderate, yep. right? Something like that, right? Yeah. Not hubristic. 
what's the what's the term your term uh, sophrosinate yeah right something yeah. along those lines right sophron yeah it's something yeah. like that right um, self self controlled um, being in control of yeah. all of one's senses and Absolutely. one's body and one's yeah. mind and sure. that kind of thing yeah. yeah okay so there's okay. that what else are we doing I think we have finished finally with the Homeric Hymn to Apollo. We have. Do and we I say finally just because it's a very long one. Right. Um, it's an interesting one, but it is a very long one. Um, I don't have any listener mail because oh, okay. it has been a bit of time since our last episode. All right. Um, we do have a couple of things down uh, planned in the in the works. We are thinking about Hephaestus, but we're probably going to do some Penelope, something short on Penelope yes. next. Yes. Just a little something to... To um, get an idea about the character and quality of Penelope and the Odyssey. And our listeners might be interested in the History of Ancient Greece podcast. They've got, uh, Ryan Stitt has got some episodes coming up mm -hmm. on uh, theater and talking about some of the plays, which yes. we also talk about. He'll be looking at them, I understand, from more of a historical, political, social perspective, mm -hmm. perhaps. Um, so that's something to keep, to keep, keep an on the eye watch out. for those. Yeah, keep on the watch for those. There's a new Facebook group. Um, yes, as well. yes, as well for for yeah, that history podcast. History um, podcast we'll be having a brief uh, cameo appearance, I guess, on the Better Podcasting sure podcast yep. shortly. So if you are a podcaster, um, you can uh, listen to that podcast. It's mm -hmm. it's pretty good. It's called uh, Better Podcasting. Better Podcasting. It's very useful, and it's targeted for people like us, people who uh, just want to get into podcasting and aren't part of uh, big networks. Sure. And speaking of big networks, if you are looking for more humanities podcasts or are a humanities podcaster, on Twitter, the hashtag humanitypodcasts, with an S on the end there, uh, is a great way to find fellow humanities podcasters. So anything about the arts and history and literature and uh, music and all those kinds of kinds of good humanities, uh, humanities topics can be found there. Uh, thank you to our Patreons uh, who make, who help make this possible. And you can listen to the end of the episode for a little bit more information about our Patreon account. And we do welcome your support if you're able to give it. And if you're not, please take time to review us, rate us on iTunes, share us with your friends. I want um, to do more sound effects. More sound I'm effects? I'm going to do okay. more sound effects during the course of the uh, podcast. Okay, well, yeah. I'll, I'll leave you with yeah. the sound effects. So, dear listener, if this sounds, if this episode is overridden with sound effects. <laughs> no, not like, no, just me making strange noises. Oh, yeah. I like thought you I, meant you were going to add more in. No, I played the serpent. Okay. I, I played the okay. voice of the dying serpent, so you know, okay. we'll do more of those. Excellent. And can you believe I'm actually on episode nine of Drive Time now? Oh, so, yeah. Soon to be ten. And I said, yeah. and I said maybe that you'd be in episode ten. Oh, I'd maybe. get you to pop in. Yeah, Darren does a little video um, on YouTube, but you can find it on our Facebook page, um, facebook.com slash mythtake, or also on our blog, mythtake.blog, which right. has a handy page you can use to email us. Yes. Um, but Darren does short little snippets of some of his thoughts about myth yeah. um, on video, so you can see him while he talks yeah, to vlogging. you. Yeah, vlogging. Yeah, vlogging. Is that, do yeah. we still use that word these days? Uh, I do, okay. why not? Okay. All right. Um, so, yeah, I will quit rambling, and we will wish you a good night. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon. See you at episode 24. All right. Bye-bye. We appreciate it.
for listening to Myth Take, a fresh take on ancient myth. This episode of Myth Take has been brought to you by our generous patrons, Avon McMaster and Mark Sunderham, Joel Barfoot, and Erica Dilworth. Like what you hear? Support us on patreon.com slash mythtake. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep our show going and growing. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mythtake or on Twitter with hashtag mythtake. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, or find our RSS feed on Podbean. If you enjoy our podcast, please take a moment to rate it and comment on iTunes. Let others know it's worth a listen. For more information about the show, including show notes and music credits, or to get in touch, visit our website at mythtake.log. If you like this podcast, you may be interested in other podcasts that focus on the humanities. In fact, if you search Twitter for the hashtag Humanities Podcast, you'll find plenty of shows on history, language, literature, philosophy, art, and more. These podcasts are by people who enjoy telling stories, exploring the arts in our world, and who want to share that knowledge. Some examples of podcasts you'll find are The Endless Knot, an in-depth podcast featuring history, etymology, and all-around fun facts about a different topic every episode. The Story Behind, a short narrative podcast featuring the extraordinary history of ordinary objects, people or places, or The Archaeology Podcast Network, which features a variety of podcasts focusing on archaeology. Search hashtag Humanities Podcast today or follow Humanities Podcasters on Twitter. And if you're a Humanities Podcaster, use the hashtag in your tweets so others can find you.